0: Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts.
1: They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy.
0: You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today.
2: He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe.
3: Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. <laughs>
2: All of the
0: podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started.
1: Welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. We have the whole crew together again today, which is good news. And I'm going to kick it over to Dwight to talk about yield curve inversion in the mortgage market, which sounds like something uh, most people would fall asleep to, but explain to us why this is somewhat important.
0: Sure. So I found this article by uh, Blair Duqueni. Um So we'll link to it, as, but it's a uh, BlairBellCurve.com. And the whole idea here is, is part of this yield curve with uh, interest long-term interest rates going down. The idea here is that, hey, look, your mortgage rates are certainly at the lowest levels they have been in quite a long time. So all this talk of like, hey, rates are going up, refinance. Um, maybe that is true. Um, and just talking, the her point was looking at these different adjustable rate mortgages, meaning your rates aren't fixed forever um, but that these rates are, are lower than maybe even fixed rates, um, because of the inverted yield curve. Um, and she also ties it back into home ownership and length of ownership. Um, and most people not owning their home for 30, 40 years. And so that this might be a good way to kind of hack the yield curve, if you will use it to your advantage. You guys have any thoughts on this or do you guys use any of this type of stuff with clients or think through
1: this with them? We, so my wife and I, we have a an arm. So we have a seven-year arm on our house, which we refinanced a year and a half ago because we know it's not our forever home. Um, it's more of a one-child type of house. So we wanted to get rid of the, the PMI payments, so the private mortgage insurance, and be able to take more and put it towards principal. So we were able to do that. Also, uh, I would agree with uh, Blair on the whole idea of refinancing and using arms because if it's not a forever home, why would you want to have a fixed rate where you're paying so much in interest at the front end of that mortgage for the life of, you know, maybe max 10 years. I've heard, you know, the average mortgage is five to six. She's saying 13, who knows, depends on where you ask and who you ask. But the other interesting thing with rates continuing to go down and a lot of the world being negative, there's a Danish bank that's offering mortgages for a negative rate, which blows your mind. So, who knows what it looks like? Um, we've chatted on home ownership prior, more of a lifestyle choice, but with rates continue to go
2: down, it could be more
1: attractive in the future.
2: First off, it's Blair Ducanet. I met her one time for five minutes, so we're basically best friends now, so I just have to uh, defend her- My apologies. Never her last name.
0: <laughs> Sincerely.
2: <laughs> no, I, I, it took me like a month to, to figure it out too, so it's okay. Um, yeah i i think i mean what's the difference i guess between doing this stuff and timing the market i keep i feel like i could always go back to our uh, our original analysis of the home buying process of homes are terrible investments blah blah blah. your break-even point isn't until seven eight maybe nine years down the road um i don't know i, I agree that if you're in that situation and you can take advantage advantage of it and the closing costs you know do your homework and make sure that you're not actually uh, spending time splitting pennies here. I, I think that's an awesome idea, refinance. Um, I think there's a lot of things that you, ha- a consumer, like probably not the folks on this podcast, I think you, we could all handle that and get it right. It, especially Isaiah, if you guys were to like refinance or whatever, you would probably do a, a great job with that, make a great decision. But I always come to think too of what do you do, what does the consumer, average consumer, do with that extra cash flow? You know, they reduce their mortgage and all that stuff. Um, I'm glad that they're able to cut the bank out of the deal maybe a little bit. But where does that other, other uh, additional cash flow go to? Does it go straight to uh, living expense lifestyle creep? Um, the, I feel like in order for this really to win out and to be a positive situation, you kind of have to not only refinance correctly and then also to do something positive for yourself, increase your savings, AKA in any way possible, or increase your mortgage payment, whatever. Um, I don't know, just, I don't really see that happening with the con- average consumer, just kind of a comment yeah. there.
3: Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with Colin here. As, as somebody who views finance as primarily a behavioral question, I always feel like when I when clients are saving money, if they're not immediately repurposing those funds for another purpose, like if they're saving money on a bill or, or something like that, they're not actually saving it. It ends up being a discretionary amount of money that they spend and it builds into their lifestyle. So I see her argument, but I've personally been a fan of 30-year fixed mortgages with a lot of the work that I do because it's, it's a knowable expense over the long period of time, right? Which means that... Overall, I can plan for these sorts of things. We can build a spending plan around these expenses and know mm-hmm. that those things are going to be there. And even if the client only stays in the home for 10 years, so they don't really get the benefit of the long-term fixed uh, value, they always knew what that expense was going to be along the way. And that means that they end up getting you know, the most out of their savings during that period of time.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is making sure people understand what they're getting into and what those trade-offs are, right? Like I've seen some interest-only mortgages and um, some of those where there's some big balloon payments and now you're kind of stuck in the situation where you don't have a choice because those rates are either resetting or, or suddenly you have to pay principal and your mortgage payment has gone up significantly and the cash flow may or may not be there um, or you're forced to sell. Like, so I've seen some some situations where the can has been kicked and uh, it it can be not ideal. So I think it takes some planning other than just saying, Hey, the rates are super cheap. Um, And, you know, I think the other thing too is thinking about has every it have you or haven't you already refinanced. And I think that's a good conversation people have had. So we're starting to get down to what's the margin here. You know, if your rate is already pretty low, I mean, I don't see too many uh, eight or nine percent mortgages out there anymore. I think most people have kind of uh, have gotten a pretty big bite of the
1: apple already. So the lifestyle creep is just helping to sustain the economy and this expansion that we've had. So I think we just need to think about it positively that way. If they're able to refinance and spend more, the economy will just continue to grow. So. As long as they're your <laughs> clients and not mine. Yeah, right. I was about to say, look, man, my job isn't to keep the U.S. economy going. My
3: job's to keep my clients happy so um, and growing and growing wealth. So I, I'm not sure that I, I share your perspective. <laughs> no,
1: Col- Colin had the right take. I mean, just shoot, save it. Don't save it into a bank account paying you nothing. Like, actually save it. Like, put it somewhere where you're not going to touch it. You're not going to spend it and it can grow for the long term. So tweet of the week, or do we have any other uh, thoughts on the yield curve inversion and in mortgage rates?
3: No, I think this is a good time to transition over to tweet of the week and our uh, trusty calculator at random.org pulled out Dwight. So Dwight, it's go a good ahead. thing
0: I've done my homework this week. Um, it so is. my so time you pull your weight around. <laughs> so uh, my <laughs> tweet came from Carl Richards. So he's the, uh, he's from behavioral gap. He wrote a couple books um, and he's the Sharpie guy from New York times. So I, I like, he does a good job, I think in putting together some complex topics in a um, very succinct, easy to digest uh, way to do <laughs> Collins over here showing his, uh, his framed uh, Carl Richards uh, cartoon. So, Anyway, the tweet here is Carl pointed out the best financial plans are written in pencil, not carved in stone, and then did an update and said the best plans are written in pencil, not carved in stones, including financial plans, business plans, uh, fitness plans, life plans.
3: I mean, I 100% agree with that. I've found that almost every financial plan I've done has been upended by a client change within the next two years. So that means that either they bought a house that they didn't think they were going to buy or they ended up making more money or less money than they thought they were going to or their investments outperformed dramatically what we thought they would. Like All of these things can completely change the context that you were working on the financial plan from, right? Um, so I think that the, the adaptable nature of a good financial plan is probably the most important aspect of it. Um, It needs to remain that the advice is either good or revisable regardless of the client's situation.
2: Yeah, I I agree. I I love what most of uh, I guess I love the idea of what he's talking about. Keep it simple. I love how he talks about uh, writing in in the Sharpie. talks about his book, The One Page Financial Plan. Make sure that it's, you know, something that the client can implement, understand, grab onto. Because we, I feel like, especially as, you know, nerdy finance guys will, you know, we could come up with this 100-page financial plan that is the most efficient tax-wise, return-wise, standard deviation, blah, blah, blah. But if the client doesn't grasp it and implement it, then what good are we even doing? So I love it in the interview that he did with Michael Kitsis on a podcast, actually even took it a step further. And he went out and said that financial plans are useless. And and then he, of course, you know, kind of backpedals and says, the 50 page PDF financial plan is useless to Ian's point, because the moment you walk out of my office, your life is going to change. Uh, your goals are going to change. You know something's going to happen. You're going to get a promotion. You're going to have to move. Something's going to happen. Well, the family's going to grow. Uh, There'll be a passing in the family. Who who knows? Something's going to change, and then we have to continue to be revising, updating, monitoring, and adjusting this plan. So he says the planning process is um is is invaluable. You know it's that is what a hundred percent where the value lies. The 50 page financial plan totally you're
1: telling me that a 50 page financial plan is the same as buying a brand new car as soon as you take it off the lot it's lost so much of its value so i think there's a correlation there of understanding the wow. two like <laughs> i agree because there's a lot of you know challenges with a having a 50 page like why do you need 50 pages that seems foolish I mean, there's some numbers and charts and graphs and all kinds of fun stuff you can put in there. And yeah, for certain people, especially more engineering types that really want to dig into the weeds, it can be beneficial to help them maybe stick with the plan. But for the vast majority of people, they just want answers to a couple key core questions. When can I retire? Am I going to be okay? And what do I need to do? Like, If you can answer those three things, usually most people, you can have that on one page and explain it. And then if they need the detail, you have the supporting documentation behind it, but So many different people, if you give them all these options and all this information, it becomes really overwhelming. You need to give them, you know, bite-sized pieces to continue to do and and improve on. And, you know, to to Ian's point, I think also like advisors, sometimes the returns of hiring a financial advisor can be really lumpy. So if you think about it, things can, you know, at the initial stage, really getting organized and building that initial plan, real big benefit and help. And then maybe nothing changes for the following year or the year after. And it's like, hey, we're going to continue to do what we talked about and then the big life changes come into play, job changes, all these other you know, challenges. And then you kind of are redoing a lot of the work again, but that's just part of the life cycle of, of working with someone. So I would agree with that.
3: Yeah, I, my favorite quote from my father-in-law who mentored me in the beginning on this subject is, the financial plan is for the financial planner, not for the client. The financial plan summary is for the client the financial plan just tells the advisor what they need to be recommending right so if you're a good financial planner you're using all the data that you build out in the financial plan to develop that one page summary for your client of all the changes that need to be made but in most cases the clients never gonna flip past that page unless you tell them to right so that's just something that I always found interesting
0: yeah. Cause I'm going to push back a little bit. I mean, I do think that the plan itself, that initial plan is helpful for a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of people that have never done that. You know, you might have a married couple that have been married for 40 years and have never put their stuff together to see what are, you know, what's your net worth and how much money do you actually make together? I mean, that's a little, it's somewhat makes more sense because you file a tax return together, but, um, you know, I've worked with folks that that's, that's, that's they've never done that. And that's the first time doing it. And um you know i get the privilege to say hey it's you know you're gonna be okay you're on track um and here's some things that i recommend you might want to do um to be better on track um but you know i do think there's some help you that can be helpful but you know, to your point, Isaiah, you're right. I mean, it, you, most people want to answer those big three questions and then, you know, it's financial implementation at this point. Okay. What are the things that actually need to be done? Um, and that's where a good financial planner can also come in and make sure that this is, this is done correctly, done on time, um, figure out what's important, what's urgent, um, and categorize the, or, you know, help, uh, prioritize those different goals and, uh, pieces. So, um, but yeah, there's, a I can't remember who said it and I try to find it, but it was iron butterflies, like looks good, doesn't fly. So, um, that's kind of why I like a lot of what Carl puts out. Cause it, it looks good and it's, it's simple and conveys a lot of, a lot of good information in a very simple way.
2: And his one page financial plan could be made into a paper airplane <laughs> and
3: indeed fly. True. Um, all right. So do we want to move on to our final topic for this week? Colin, take us away.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So this brings me some pain uh, because I I do kind of like referring to this study. It's the famous Delbar study where they go in and they measure investor returns versus investment returns. So basically, how does the market do? But then how do people do? And their famous numbers, I'm just going to kind of round them off here for the last 30 years. The uh, market has averaged somewhere around 10% per year, while investors, holders of mutual fund large cap, they're they're referring to here, so we're measuring against the S&P 500, have done roughly 4%. So there's there's a 6% per year delta. Of investor of investment versus investor returns, and that's kind of been this uh, number that a lot of people have referred to. I know Burton Malkiel has referred to it. Uh, people, uh, uh, Nick Murray has referred to it in a lot of his books. A lot of folks have have gone to this study and said, "Hey, this is." What an advisor brings in value is this behavioral investment. And th- and they're saying, you know, it, not only are there fees and things involved. And I kind of, when I actually first read this, I wrote a blog post about it. And then I even cross referenced it with one of Michael Kitsis's uh, median or the average advisor costs, and you know, he basically says, "Hey, it's right around one and a half percent all in between investments and advisory fees." And then I said uh, in my blog post, "Wow, but there's a six percent delta. What's this f- missing four and a half percent?" And not to keep going back to this behavioral gap of Carl Richards, but then that's basically what he named it. Is it's because when the markets go up, there is a Uh, an obvious inflow into the markets. People are wanting to invest because the times are great and they're never going to end. And then when the markets go down, it is measurable. You can see the volume in the market. There's actually, in a lot of years, a net outflow. So they're kind of pointing to this to say that is the reason investors are having such terrible returns. Well, the study goes on here to talk about eh, maybe Delbar might have been measuring this in a little bit different ways, because there's a big difference between average returns, there's a big difference between weighted time average, and, and uh, other ways to measure returns. And, you know, it's kind of just like every other statistician out there. Stats don't lie, but statisticians do. And you can kind of cut it, chop it, however you want. It's probably not so uh, dramatic, it, the real numbers, is, is kind of what this this article is outlining. Uh, what do you guys have to say about it?
1: Yeah, Colin, it's a great point. And I, I would say I've been guilty of using Dalbar information to have conversations with people, more so at uh, the previous location I worked because it was one of those things that, hey, it's easy when you can utilize JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets, and they still put it in there with the Dowbar information. It goes back uh, basically 20 years, but it says you, the average investor since 99 through 2018 earned 2% and the S&P 500 was like five and a half. So again, what's the what's the delta? What's the difference between the two? It's the behavior gap. It's why you hire me. This is why these active funds and all the stuff that I'm gonna do for you. It's why you pay me. It's an easy thing for people to feel like that's the value that gets brought just from the investment allocation piece. And we can have a long conversation and we've disputed it many times on here about diversification and investment philosophy. And I'm sure we'll have more discussions over the course of. our our time together. But um, yeah, there's countless different articles. And I know that um, Jonathan Clement has also written about the issues with the Dalbar study. I was looking for that article, couldn't find it, but we can link to that as well. And just saying that, you know, it's not really that bad. Morningstar just did one as well. And it's closer to like one-ish to two, one to 2%, maybe not this four, six, piece where maybe behavior isn't as bad and they also talk about the average investor endowments like all these other people struggle and do the same type of stuff it's not just the person that lives down the street that's making mistakes it's everybody tons of people are doing dumb things when it comes to to managing assets and we can sit here and say hey if you hire us we do something different we're all you know beholden to behavioral biases and different things we believe in so it's Just understanding it's not the solution, it's like you have to have some structure around it to combat it as well.
3: Yeah, I mean to Isaiah's point, I think the biggest difference is not necessarily some sort of massive percentage difference in behavioral gap returns, but I think it's actually just having a structure and a system set up in order to make, you know, the decisions that you make more effective and easier. So investor to investor it's going to be a very different delta in how they would have done on their own versus how they do with a financial planner or advisor but i think that there's still enough value in there to justify it but maybe it's not the four to six to eight percent delta that we sometimes hear about
0: well i think the other thing too is all of us on on this show are not entirely focusing on investments. I mean, certainly it's one piece that we all do and have some interest in, um, but all of us on here are CFPs. So we all focus on planning, like none of us are CFAs or anything like that i mean we all focus on planning so whether that's how do you structure your business in a certain way or taxes um, which is a big thing um, state planning all the different modules that financial planners touch on Um, so i think there's just things that we do that don't directly tie back to um, the market so i think ian like what you said it's a little bit more about having a good cohesive structure i think all three of us could have differing opinions on all of that but i think some i think all three of us have some sort of process in terms of how did we think about this um you know and being consistent i know i said before the show we were talking about it uh for just diff- somewhat off topic of like just be consistent just <laughs> just want to see more consistency on on thoughts and things like that so it, i think that's something that i think all three of us try to um portray and be able to help clients with is having a consistent process to say, this is how we think about these things. And by the way, there's all this other stuff that is going to have a huge uh, impact as well uh, into your plan and how successful, potentially successful you can be.
3: Oh, for sure. I mean, it's hard to measure the potential uh, benefit of having an estate plan in place if the client never passes away while they're working with you, right? It's also hard to measure the potential benefit of, you know, savings, investing strategies, insurance, and all these things tied together. Um, but I was, you know, it, 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 the, the conversation around financial advising so often comes back to focusing only on investment returns, because I think that's what gets the public's attention. Because that's what the public associates with what we do.
1: Yeah, but I'll, and again, Ian, I think the, part of the reason that is, is I mean, probably one of the most famous, and I don't know, wouldn't call him an advisor, but if you think about you know, a figurehead in the Fintwit community, Josh Brown's talked about even on a podcast recently that investors will always measure someone by the investment returns. And that's on the long shot with Morningstar with Christine Benz. So straight up, there's certain people that will tell you that's how they're measured. And I don't have an issue with that because I think that they should be measuring you. You shouldn't be like doing terrible compared to the market, but you need to have some sort of structure and process back to what Dwight said around how you do things. Would I have said the same thing? No, I would not. But again, I think people do look to that because it's the easiest quantifiable thing because they can look up what's the S and P done, what's Isaiah done, what's Ian done, what's Dwight done, what's Colin done and say, that's the value.
3: And they are short-sighted in that. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, I think it's hard because like we talked about, we touch on so many different subject areas that they'll focus on the one that has the most numbers data to compare, right? It's very easy to say this is larger than this or this is smaller than this. And when you look at a lot of the more qualitative or long-term quantitative aspects of financial planning, it's really hard to, as a client, look at things and go well, how has my advisor helped me over the last year, right?
0: Well, here's the thing. like I'm a CPA, so by trade, I'm used to looking backwards. We're auditing financial statements. We're doing tax returns. We're looking at transactions that have happened. Hey, you sold your business. How do we organize and compile data in a certain way? And for the most part, those things have already happened. Um, And so it's a little bit easier to armchair quarterback on Monday or Tuesday and say this is what somebody should have done, but you're not sitting there um, trying to make a good decision with limited information going forward, um, with a lot of here's what ifs and you know trying to trying to make the best decision we can. It's like we're trying to predict the future here, or you know I try you know we're trying to set you up for to get you in the best position for success. Um, I like I'm out here in Colorado, so you. A lot of fly fishing. So it's like, well, a guide, a fly fishing guide is going to get you in the right spots in the water to put you in the best position to, to catch a fish and be there to help you land it. Um, but ultimately that person has to cast the fly and sometimes a fish bites and sometimes it doesn't. And so there you are. But, um, so I, I think that's just something to kind of remember too, is there's a lot of stuff we look at. What did the last 20 years do the last 30 years do last 50 years, you know, but we don't know what tomorrow is going to be necessarily. So, um, it's, you know some ways just looking backwards is always easier this is what academia says should have happened well of course you get to run it in a perfect sanitized environment like now go sit with somebody and help them make a decision on how they want to pass on their assets for example like you said ian with all the emotions that go in with that not that easy
2: yep I think we could all probably agree there is some type of delta at, you know going back to just what the article is saying between what investors do and in average uh, in, uh, investment returns. It's probably next to impossible to seriously quantify that in an unbiased way. But at the end of the day, I think it's really our job as advisors to be able to have that honest conversation and to share with clients like, hey, you could almost think of my value as like, an insurance policy almost to protect you from doing something uh, uh, silly or making a mistake, keeping you on track, uh, and and also helping you focus on the things that we can control ultimately. I mean, like we spoke about earlier on the show of what happens when you refinance, where does those extra dollars go? Do they go to your restaurant budget or do they go to your savings budget? Like, And then helping clients really understand and quantify if they keep doing what they're doing, where are we going to end up I don't have a crystal ball nobody does but let's try to make conservative assumptions and make sure that you're at least pointed in the right direction
3: yeah that's a fair point Colin
2: so with that wrapping up on the show uh, do we have any uh, comments on uh, to to summarize
3: I mean my my biggest closing thought goes back to our tweet of the week which is when you're Searching for a professional to help you with anything, whether that's financial planning, taxes, estate planning, yada, yada, yada. Find somebody that can explain the difficult concepts to you in the language that you understand, because ultimately that's what's going to be valuable for you, not necessarily the giant charts and lots of pages of analysis they can do.
1: I'll touch on the last piece of the DABAR study and, and, you know, what's the worth. You can think about it as understanding, you know, what's an investment approach. It's going to help you succeed over the very long term because everyone talks about being a long term investor. There are ways that you can be a very successful long term investor. There's ways you can be a very unsuccessful long term investor. And I think so many times there's people that want to measure in short windows. And I'm comfortable, and I'll say it here, I'd say it anywhere. I'm comfortable looking like an idiot for a number of years to be right long term. That's my job. My job is to help protect someone from making really dumb decisions. And if they fire me because of it and they never see the, the results, like I want to have those conversations up front. And hopefully they don't even come in as a client. But I think that's the, the biggest issue with trying to help someone quantify an investment approach is we just look at the window too short.
2: It's like focusing on the process and not the results, because you could get good results from making a dumb decision, and you could maybe get bad results from making a good decision, trying to keep the client on a guided path uh, and and implementing things that they understand under assumptions that they believe are realistic and, and keeping them on that path. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you for tuning in today, and we will catch you next time. Thanks so much for listening. We hope
1: we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only. And you should not consider what we've talked about, investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.